Okay, let's turn our attention now to God's Word. We're going to look at John chapter 8. We've been in the middle of a series on the book of John and uh, in this uh, small kind of mini-series on Jesus's I Am statements. That's Jesus telling us who he is, but also identifying himself as the divine, as the Lord and the creator of all things. So will you join me as I read to us from John chapter 8, verse 12 through 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful for this wonderful revelation of Jesus as the light of the world. We ask now that you would enlighten our hearts by your word, that we might come to know you more fully, and we might come to love you and follow you and serve you as your people. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we, we took a little trip to Houston yesterday for a soccer game, and uh, really anybody that, that knows me well knows that even if I'm traveling you know, straight down one highway in a very easy journey, my sense of direction is not all that great, and I tend to get lost sometimes. So I think you know, uh, the miracle of GPS is probably made just for me. I'm extremely thankful for it. But I think it also raises a great question more broadly which is, how do we navigate our life? How do we navigate our lives? How do, we, how do we make decisions that we need to make? Regular, small, everyday decisions, big decisions like, where, what am I going to do with my family? Are we going to move? Am I going to take this job? Should I make this purchase? Where are my children going to go to school? Should I marry this woman? How do we navigate our lives? And maybe even deeper than those questions is, what does it mean to find real, authentic wholeness security, joy, satisfaction in life? How do we navigate to those things? And we've got a few different options, I think, that our culture gives us. We can kind of navigate our lives either by, as the, by those who are you know, careful planning, extreme control over everything. And so we're going to drive our lives by carefully planning everything. Or maybe you're just the opposite. And the way that you navigate your life is kind of fly by the seat of your pants. Or maybe that guy is sleeping on your couch right now. Or maybe you navigate life by exerting control and power over others and making sure that everybody around you serves you so that you can get the things you want out of life. Or maybe you've tried all of those and it's left you empty. And you feel like you're in a place now where you're throwing up your hands saying, well, maybe there's really no way to navigate life. You know, I think generally speaking, humans can kind of break down into two basic categories with how we answer that question. 
there are the freedom people and the rules people. And the freedom people say the way that you navigate life is that you kind of cast off all of the rules and all the things that feel like they're encumbering you, and you just go straight into whatever you want in life. And the best way to get what you want out of life is to tell everybody else to get out of the way and for you to have the most freedom as possible. I'm kind of a freedom guy. I had a friend in seminary that told me, he said, you're the only guy I know that would willingly take a C on a paper just so that you could format it the exact way that you wanted to format it. Maybe you're a rules person. Rules people navigate life by saying, okay, lay out in front of me all of the rules, give me some check boxes, and I'll check those off. I'll obey all the rules, and the way to the good life is that I do all the things that I'm supposed to do. Rules people and freedom people. Well, Jesus, I think we're going to see in this passage, addresses both. And he addresses both by saying something incredible. I am the light of the world. The way to navigate life is neither through freedom or rules, but it's through me. Let me give us a little bit of uh, background of what's going on here. Jesus is talking to Pharisees. Pharisees are the Jewish religious leaders at the time. And he's talking to them in the temple. That's in Jerusalem. And he's talking to them in the temple because they are all there for one of the big Jewish festivals in the year, the Feast of Booths. Everybody from all over the country has gathered here for this feast, this celebration, and they are all gathered around, and Jesus is actually doing a little teaching, and he's talking to the Pharisees. And just in case we've forgotten when this is, he's doing it all in the first century A.D. Now, I say this just to remind us of what hasn't happened yet, (laughs) is when we think about light, we think about flipping on a switch, But in the first century, there were no overhead lights. There was no electricity. There was no turning on the light so that everybody could see. If you lit things, you lit them with a big lamp. And historians will actually tell you that that, uh, up until about 1850, finding light and paying for light was really difficult. Around 1850 or so, around the turn of the 19th century, kerosene was invented, and kerosene became this this wonderful, cheap, and long-burning, and pretty clean, and easy way of making light. But before that, you had to find the oil of some sort of vegetable or some sort of animal and burn that. And whale oil was great, but not everybody had a pet whale, so it was kind of hard to come by. And in fact, uh, historians will say in, in about 400 B.C., Uh, light cost, uh, a a day's wage uh, uh, was worth about 10 minutes of light. So that was the cost of light, was 10 minutes of light cost almost an entire day's wage in 400 BC. In today's time and age, a day's wage will buy you about 20,000 hours of light. Well, when Jesus was talking in the first century here, a day's wage probably would have bought about an hour worth of light using the available means they had. So light was expensive. Uh, it was, you, had to, you had to be careful with it. It was costly, but it was also really important. Light for them was just as important as light is for us. And light, of course, is important if you want to see things, if you don't want to bump around in the dark. But light is actually important for our personal well-being too, isn't it? I remember in seminary having a conversation with a pastor in Portland, and I was interviewing for a job. And we were talking about this. It was a good job, good congregation, good church, nice people. And we were pretty good ways down the road talking about this job. And I finally said, okay, 
you need to come clean with me about the weather. And he said, well, you know, it rains a lot. It's kind of dark, but, um, you know, people take a lot of vitamin D and they do light therapy and everything is fine. And it was like the, the record just scratched to a halt. And I said, light therapy? Are you kidding me? I'm not going to do light therapy. As if it was just a regular thing that people did. Well, of course, people do light therapy and people want to be in the sun and people need light around them because it's good for our bodies. It's good for our skin. It's good for our minds. It's good for our well-being. Light is important. And in the midst of this conversation of light being both important and costly, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Now, I think it's good for us to pause for a second and ask that question that we asked at the beginning. How do we navigate our lives? And Jesus is saying here really clearly that trying to navigate our lives without him will only lead us into the dark. Jesus is saying, if you are trying to navigate your life without me, the true, the one light of the world, then you are only going to find frustration. You are only going to find darkness. Well, let's keep going, though because uh, there's a little bit more background that we can find here that told you that, that he's talking to the Pharisees at this big festival, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And uh, during this festival, they're, they're celebrating God's great redemption, mostly talking about the exodus out of slavery, out of Egypt. And as they're celebrating, there were some pretty important things that they did. They would get together in the temple about a week long, and on the final night of, uh, of the feast, on the kind of big celebration, the big culmination of this whole party, they would do a couple of really cool things. Everybody would bring in actually buckets of water from the pool of Siloam. You heard me talk about that in John chapter 9. And they would pour this water out in the temple and it would run out of the temple, like rivers of water coming out of the temple, spreading across the country. And then they would take their torches and they would light these four huge lamps in the temple. And they would burn bright, and it would be the only light in all of Jerusalem. And you literally could see the temple just glowing in the distance all throughout the city. So here's Jesus in the middle of all of that, saying that he is the light of the world. More so than that, though, even in this giant worship service, after they lit these lamps and they poured out all this water, they would start singing and probably dancing. And in fact, they would sing songs probably like Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and my salvation. They would probably sing something like Psalm 119. Your word is a, li a light into my path, a lamp into my way. Maybe they recalled from the prophet Isaiah that the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, would bring light to the nations. Maybe they recalled from Zechariah that the day of the Lord would be one where rivers of living water would be pouring out of Jerusalem and where God's people would be uh, an everlasting light to the world. Maybe they remembered the pillar of fire that led God's people through the wilderness. And in all of this, Jesus comes and says, I'm at the center of all of it. I'm the light of the world that stands at the center of this great celebration of God's forgiveness and his salvation. Let's ask that question again. How do we navigate our lives? Well, right here we see Jesus saying, not only do I need to be a part of it, but I need to be at the center of it. Is that if you are trying to navigate your life without me at the center, 
then you are going to find yourself somehow in the wrong direction. That compass is somehow going to be off. I have to be at the very center piece of your lives is what Jesus is saying. Now, it's good to remember how maybe uh, the folks that Jesus is talking to, the Pharisees, how they should have responded. A a very appropriate response to Jesus would have been, Jesus, if you're the light of the world, then we need you to enlighten us. We need you to shine your exposing light into our hearts. Jesus, if you're at the center of all things, if you are the one that we're actually celebrating here, then we need to bow before you as king not just as Messiah, but actually as God. Of course, that's not the way they respond, is it? They respond maybe with something that sounds a little odd. They say, Jesus, uh, you're actually bearing witness about yourself. Now, what are they talking about? Well, in in God's law, in Deuteronomy, there were uh, multiple times where God had said, listen, if you're in court and and you're actually, uh, someone is accused of a crime, then you need more than one witness to convict him of that crime. It was good for justice, right? Because you couldn't just go on the testimony of one person who just had a beef against another guy and go only on that testimony. You needed multiple people to say, yeah, this is true. This person should be punished. Actually, that's not just true of God's law. You find that requirement really in almost every legal code in history. And it's in our own legal code as well. And you can even find it in the, uh, the legal code of your own personal family. If your child writes his name spray-painted on the side of a wall, and you go and you say, young man, did you spray-paint your name on the side of the wall? And he says, no, I would never do something like that. And then you bring in a couple of other people who saw him do it, it might change his answer a little bit. The reason that you need more than one witness, the reason you don't always trust the word of the accused, is that people are liars. We lie to cover up what we've done wrong. We lie to protect ourselves. We lie to cast ourselves in the best light. We manipulate things even just ever so slightly to make ourselves look good. And so what the Pharisees are saying is they're saying, Jesus, we know this because Moses told us is that everybody lies, therefore we can't believe you. But here's what the Pharisees are missing, is that Jesus is not like everybody. Jesus will say later in John that he is not only true, but he is the truth. See, where they're starting from, their presuppositions about who God is and about who Jesus is have led them down the wrong road. So how do we navigate our lives? Third thing we learn here is that not only are are we in the dark without Jesus, not only does he need to be at the very center of our lives, but here's this one, is that when we put him at the center of our lives, he is going to reshape our presuppositions. He is going to reshape our assumptions. He is going to actually expel everything else that is at the center of our lives. Because if we are living our lives based on and according to our commitments to our finances, or our commitments to our politics, or our commitments to our status, or our commitments to our place in the community, or our commitments to our own leisure or pleasure, Jesus is going to displace those things. That's what he comes to do. Now, remember, we asked or we talked about these, uh, these two categories earlier, right? Rules people and freedom people. 
Let's talk about how each one of those categories may have a difficult time with what Jesus is saying here. Well, freedom people, again, are those who have said, the way that I navigate life is I just kind of push off any kind of constraint. I push off anything that seems to be burdening to me, and I develop my own rules. So the way that I find the good life, the way that I actually cast light into the world is that it comes from me. And the best way then for me to get what I want out of life is to push off any other requirements and to find my own way. Rules people are just the opposite. They say, listen, the best way for me to get all the good things out of life is that I obey the rules. That's what, that's what life is. It's a system of requirements. And they're laid out here in front of me, and I do my best to check off those boxes. I do my best to conform to the way that, uh, that, that life has given me, whether that's culture or religion or whatever it is. And if I achieve those things, then I am made right and whole, and that's how I have fullness. Now, the Pharisees were kind of the classic rules people. They, they had two big paradigms. They, they knew that God had created all things. And that the way to wholeness and happiness was actually to be made right with him, to find union with him, to, to, to be in relationship with him. They were right about that. But the way they, th they thought that they would come into that relationship and be made right with God was actually by doing a list of rules. And they were very wrong about that part. And let me just say, if that's the way that we understand how we get made right with God, then we are just as wrong as the Pharisees. And if we understand that the way that we get made right with ourselves or with the world is that we, that we push off any sort of requirement or constraint, then we're also just as wrong as the Pharisees. Because what they are both misunderstanding is that Jesus is actually the center of all these things. See, the Bible says that there's something that's neither freedom nor rules that actually lets us find our, full, our fulfillment and our satisfaction and even joy. It's actually something the Bible calls grace that God actually does have righteous requirements, but that Jesus has met those rules for us, that we are not called to meet them, that he has done so for us. And so we are called then to receive those things as a gift. And so it's neither in finding our ultimate freedom or in finding our ultimate fulfillment of all these rules that we find satisfaction. In fact, Jesus' answer here to how do you navigate life is neither find your own satisfaction and freedom nor chuck off all the boxes. His answer is, follow me. Follow me. Now, how do we do that? Let's close with that. How do we follow Jesus as the way to navigate our lives? Three quick things for us as we close. The first is that we follow Jesus in the daily patterns that he's given to us. Joy and I were, were reading in a devotional time the other day about this kind of concept. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does decision-making look like and dependence upon the Spirit's work in our lives as, as we're making decisions in our lives? And Joy said something that was so wise and so astute. She said, you know, I think really the key is not how we decide the little decisions. It's how the patterns that we put ourselves in daily. And she's right. As we put ourselves in front of God's word, as we're shaped by it, as we put ourselves in front of God's people and we're honest and we're transparent with one another, as we put ourselves in worship and we're transformed by the worshiping with God's people and by receiving the sacraments together, as we put ourselves in front of God in prayer 
daily, we are transformed. We get to soak in the beauty of being dependent upon Jesus. We get, to, we get to soak and bask in the light of Christ in all that we do so that when it comes time to make some really important decisions, they're actually kind of second nature for us. Depending on Jesus becomes second nature for us because we've been soaking in it every day. So that's the first way we follow Jesus is we do so in baby steps with daily dependence. Second thing that I think is important is that, Je- is that following Jesus also means that we are following him in front of others, before others. Jesus says here in John 6, I am the light of the world. But what does he say to us in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount? He says, you are the light of the world. And so God's people have always been and still are those who are meant to reflect and show God's glory and his goodness to the world around. We're supposed to be like that temple glowing on the hill, so that people see the light of Christ in us. But this is really important, right? Is that we are not the light like the sun is the light. We're the reflective light like the moon. The light of Christ actually shines in on us and we reflect that to others. We're like a lamp in a house where it's really wonderful for, for lighting the house and looks beautiful. If you want to read, you can sit down by the lamp and turn it on. But it has to be plugged in because if it's unplugged from the source, it's really worthless. The same is true for us. If we are going to be the light of the world, then we must be daily and deeply attached to the light of the world, to Christ. And then finally, here's the third thing, is that we follow him in repentance and faith. Now the Bible, when it talks about light, and there are plenty of passages all through the Old Testament and New Testament that talk about this theme of light, and oftentimes we can kind of break it down into two categories. You see the exposing light, and you see the illuminating light. The light exposes, and that light reveals. And that exposure is really big piece of what God is, or what Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about there in John 9. What he says is that you think you can see, and so that has caused you to actually close your heart to the exposing light of Christ. He said this in John 3 too, that the truth is that light has come into the world, but people like the darkness better because their, their deeds could be hidden. And so the first step in us actually following Jesus is to allow him to expose our hearts, to allow the light of Christ to shine into the deepest, darkest places of our lives so that he can reveal to us who we are in our need. He can reveal to us the things that we'd really rather not see. He can reveal to us exactly how deep we need him. And then, of course, the second piece is needed, that illuminating or revealing piece where we get to see not just our need, but we get to see who Jesus is as Savior. And so there is repentance and faith to have our hearts exposed and to turn from them and then to turn in faith to the one who truly is the light. That is the step for you if you've never heard these words before. That's the step for you and for me if you've heard them for a thousand times in your life. It's repentance and faith. It is the daily activity of the Christian. Friends, this is what we're called to today, to turn to the light of Christ in all that we do. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we are thankful uh, for this wonderful testimony that you have given of yourself. Uh, We don't need it corroborated by anyone else because you are the word. And so, Lord, we ask that this light of Christ might pierce our hearts today. 
that we might turn to you in repentance and faith in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.